As I just mentioned, today is Father's Day, and it also is the last of our series of messages that have addressed the question, what does the future hold? And I'm going to try to actually center the overhead since it's the actual last message in the series. So um, I, I thought it would be appropriate to share a few stories that will take into consideration both Father's Day and also our final topic for this particular series. The story is told of a devoted wife who spent her lifetime taking care of her husband. Now he was slipping in and out of a coma for several months, yet she stayed by his bedside the entire time. When he came to, he motioned to her to come near. As, he sat, as she sat by him, he said, You know what, honey? Says, You've been with me all through the bad times. When I got fired, you were there to support me. When my business failed, you were there. When I got shot, you were by my side. When we lost the house, you gave me support. When my, my health started to fail, you were by my side. He says, and now here I am, I'm dying, and you're here to this very last day. He said, you know what, honey? She said, no, what, dear? He said, the more I thought about it, I think you're bad luck. <laughs> hey, if they weren't true stories, I wouldn't share them with you. All right, how many of you enjoy email? How many of you have email addresses, use email? Do you know how dangerous email can be sometimes? If you just miss an address or, or a letter or whatever, it changes everything. Well, here's one to consider. It was a case of an Illinois man who left the snow-filled streets of Chicago for a vacation in Florida. It says his wife was on a business trip and was going to plan to meet him there the next day. When he reached the hotel, he decided to send a quick email to her. Unable to find a scrap of paper that had her email address, he tried to go by memory. Unfortunately, he just changed one letter, and that's all it took for this to happen. He missed one letter, and the note was directed instead to an elderly preacher's wife whose husband had passed away only the day before. When the grieving widow checked her email, she took one look at the monitor, let out a piercing scream, and fell faint to the floor. At the sound of it, her family came running into the room. They checked the screen on the email, and it read this, Honey, just got checked in. Everything prepared for your arrival tomorrow. <laughs> said, it said, P.S. Sure is hot down here. <clears throat> and lastly, there's this story. There are three people who died simultaneously and they appeared before the gates of heaven. Two of them were men, one was a woman. They appeared before St. Peter, who obviously has the important position of guarding the gates says the first one a lawyer from california said i'd like to enter please peter said oh very well in good time first you must pass one small test the lawyer said fine what is it he said you must spell god the lawyer said that's a snap god g-o-d excellent peter said you may enter the second was an oil man from texas he said i'd like to enter peter said well in good time but first you must pass one simple test he said you must spell god and the texas oil man said that's a snap god g-o-d I, I thought he was going to spell G-A-W-D, but that's a different thing. So he got in. The third, it was a, the third person was an attractive female stockbroker from New York who approached St. Peter. She said, I'd like to enter. Peter said, very well and good, all in good time, but first you must pass one small test. At that, she interrupted and said, come on, Saint. She said, I've had a tough all my life. I've had a fight for every promotion I've ever had because I'm a woman. I've had to settle for lower pay for the same positions as my male coworkers. I've continually been hassled by a boss who's a male chauvinist pig. So now what? Now, are you going to also give me a hard time too? She said, well, it's just a small test. She said, just spell Czechoslovakia. Anyway, no story, no, uh, 
No study of future events would uh, be complete without addressing that one inevitable fate that all of us must face, and that is our own mortality. You know, death has been said as the great equalizer, the common destiny of all of, all of ours, because it cares not whether one is um, famous or anonymous, rich or poor, educated or ignorant, whether we're powerful or weak, good or bad, young or old, whether we're black or white, male or female. We cannot outrun this inevitable future event. Yet what's interesting as I consider that, the irony of all of it is this, that most of us prepare and spend more time getting ready for a summer vacation or a trip to Europe than we do for that inevitable trip that all of us must face at one point or another in our life, and that is this, the journey from this life to the next. And so in this final session, we're going to examine what the Bible has to say specifically of that moment in time that moment, that's the moment right after your death or the moment after your death. I think it's a subject that all of us should be interested in, very much so, considering the fact that it, it affects every one of us. And I think as we look at that, we're going to address the question, the moment after you die, what can we expect according to what the Bible teaches? You know, the interesting thing, too, is that since there's so many jokes and stories concerning death and dying, and it's so prevalent, it's no wonder that there are so many misunderstandings, misconceptions, and false ideas that are promoted and they're accepted as truth. I like the cartoon that a guy gave me recently that I thought was kind of interesting. He knows my background, so he thought I'd appreciate it. I thought maybe you would too. But uh, I'm not sure what this cartoon is. If you know, let me know. But there's uh, Hobbes, Calvin and Hobbes. Okay, one of them's Calvin and the other must be Hobbes. And uh, what's, what's his which? The, guy, the kid? Okay, there's Calvin. Stand, uh, sitting there just kind of laying, thinking about things, and he says to Hobbes, which must be some kind of uh, animal, says, uh, I wonder where we go when we die, and they're both sitting there thinking, and he goes on and uh, he says, uh, Pittsburgh? And, uh, and Calvin comes back and says, now you mean if we're good or if we're bad? So all, jo all joking aside, I got my own take on that, but um, all joking aside, what does the Bible tell us concerning death? What can you and I expect to experience the moment after our death? Now, first of all, it's important to recognize and understand that death by biblical definition means separation. According to James 2.26 and numerous other passages, death takes place the moment that the spirit and the soul leaves the body. And as we'll see, death is not the end, but the beginning of a whole new existence in another world. All the Bible teach, also, the Bible teaches uh, clearly in passages too numerous to, to number that there are only two destinies. There are only two opportunities that, that take place the moment after we die. The two destinies are what we'll call the ascent into glory, or the Bible refers to as heaven, the presence of God himself, or there's the, 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 the descent into gloom, which has to do with, as we'll see, Hades, ultimately hell, or the lake of fire, and, and, and uh, lacking from the presence of God himself. And so as we look at these things and we begin to understand, there's only two opportunities that take place the moment after we die, and you will experience one of these two destinies. As we go through this and we look and see what God has to say, I thought I'd start with the bad news first and uh, end it on an up note, but the bad news is, uh, is bad news, and in fact, not only is it bad news, but it's probably the worst news that any human being can ever hear. Several years ago, while teaching a, um, while teaching a Bible study at uh, the Los Angeles Rams training facility, I was uh, interrupted by a couple of players who walked in during the midst of this particular study 
and it was it, it was not unusual for players to come in late, nor is it unusual for you know some of you to show up late. But uh, so that isn't what caught my attention. What caught my attention was the fact that these two particular players were men that had no interest in what was going on within that room. They had never come to Bible study, they had never come to chapel service, and they had no interest in what was going on. And they were actually very vocal about the fact that they didn't think it was something that should be taking place um, on, on, on that uh, particular campus or in, in their facility. What they had heard, though, is what brought them to the room, and they had heard that particular day, in fact, just moments before they entered into the room, they had heard that a fellow teammate of theirs, their former teammate, who they had played many years with, had been killed in a one-car automobile accident driving to northern, or southern, actually central California off of Highway 395 toward Mammoth Lake. And he was alone, it was a one-car accident, apparently they believed he had fallen asleep, and went off the side of the road, his vehicle rolled over several times, and he was ejected because he wasn't wearing a seatbelt, and his vehicle uh, rolled over him, and he was killed instantly. And so they came to us because they had, the, um, they had the responsibility of trying to put together a funeral service or a memorial service, and they came to me, and they asked if I would mind coming and speaking to that particular funeral service. They knew, as I knew, that the gentleman who was killed had no interest in God, he had no interest in spiritual things. He was quite vocal about the fact that he did not believe in God. And uh, so it made for a rather interesting request. And my question to them was, well, you know that so-and-so didn't believe in God. He had no interest in God. Why is it that you would ask me to come and speak? And their answer was kind of interesting. And they said, well, you know, we just thought it would be appropriate uh, that there was some type of religious touch uh, to the ceremony or to the, to the uh, occasion. And so I agreed only on one basis, and that would be that they would give me the freedom to discuss whatever I thought was appropriate for that particular moment. Um, <coughs> and, and it's a perfect opportunity to ask that. And basically, after they talked about it for a little while, they hesitantly, reluctantly uh, agreed that I could say whatever I thought was appropriate for the moment. Now, here was a man, as this particular funeral service started, Probably the one word that sums it up better than anything that I can think of is the word hopelessness. If you've ever been to such a funeral, you know exactly what I'm talking about. There's just a, a spirit of, of hopelessness. And you know it's hopeless because of the comments that are made. You know that it's hopeless because everybody that speaks and says something tries to give it some positive spin, but it's always, I hope. I hope wherever he is, he's not suffering any longer. I hope wherever she is that they're better than they were here. I hope that they're finally at peace and I hope that they're finally at rest. I know wherever he is, this particular, and this is the speaker that I followed, I know wherever he is, he's having a beer, he's listening to Country Western, and he's probably fishing or hunting. I hope. I hope. Here was a man who had made millions playing a game that he loved. He was the object of worship by adoring fans. He enjoyed much of what this life had to offer, yet now he was dead at the age of 33. The question that you have to ask yourself is this, what did he experience the moment after he died? Now, of course, I can't be judge, but assuming that he died as he lived, rejecting God, rejecting the love and the forgiveness of God that's offered through Jesus Christ, Assuming he died as a, quote, unbeliever, what was this man experiencing even as we gathered at the Rams training facility to honor his memory? 
What would those who had gathered there seen if they could look beyond the crowd, his family, and the many photographs that were gathered for the occasion and peek behind the curtain of death? If you've got your Bibles, turn with me and we'll see a good view of exactly what they would have seen if indeed they were aware of the fact that Jesus has much to say and clearly tells us exactly what an unbeliever can expect to experience the moment after they die. Luke 16, chapter 16, verses 19 through 31, gives an actual historical event, a true story of two men and, the, and their eternal destinies. And as we'll see, for one of these men, it was truly very bad news. In Luke chapter 16, starting with verse 19, it says, Now there was a certain man, very specific, one who would be known by those who were listening to Jesus tell this particular account. There was a certain man, and he habitually, he was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, gaily living in splendor every day of his life. So it gives a wonderful description of what this man's life here on earth was all about. He was a rich man. He was habitually dressed in purple, which had to do with that of those who were wealthy and fine linen, gaily living in splendor every day. He was a life of extravagance. It was a life of plenty. It says, And a certain poor man, by contrast, named Lazarus, was laid at his gate, covered with sores, and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs, which were wild and undomesticated at that time, were coming and licking his sores. It says, Now it came about that the poor man died, and he was carried by angels to, the, to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died after that and was buried. And in Hades, he, the rich man, lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus bad things. But now he is being comforted here, and you are in agony. It says, And besides all this, between us and you there is a great chasm that's fixed, in order that those who wish to come over from here to you may not be able, and that none of us, and that none may cross over from there to us. It says, And he said, Then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead... Surely they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. In this particular account, it's always, as always, is important to uh, remember the context in which this is given. And in this particular section, if you look, you'll notice that Jesus is warning the uh, Pharisees who are listening to this that not everything that we see is the way it really is. He's saying don't be thrown off by the outward appearance that man sees because God knows the heart. And if you look at verse 14 and 15 of the same chapter, it says that the Pharisees were lovers of money, were listening to all these things, and they were scoffing at Jesus and his teaching. It says, and he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men, but God knows your hearts, for that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. And so what Jesus was warning them, he said, listen, you know what, don't put your trust in riches because riches will surely flee from you. Don't put your trust in the things of this world because the things of this world can never save you. And there are many people who do that to this day. They put their trust and their, their, their faith and confidence in the things that they have. 
but as has been said in many occasions, I've never seen a hearse pulling a U-Haul. And the reason for it is very simple, because, you know, the day that you die and the moment after your death, you will experience that which God promises according to his word, and it's going to be different than many people think heading into it. He's saying, don't put your trust in riches which will flee from you. Don't put your trust in material things, because you'll end up leaving those behind, and they'll be of no value to you then. And he says, and not only that, but don't put your trust in outward appearances, because God's not snowed by any of it, because God knows the heart. And there are many who, as we look around, we would be snowed by the outward appearance. They have a, 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 a presence, so to speak, that would seem like they were pleasing to God. It would seem like the day that they die, they would make that ascent into glory and they'd appear before God and live with him forever in heaven. But, but God says, don't get snowed by any of that, because God knows something that many of us can never tell, and that's the heart. And so as we look at this, we begin to realize that, that Jesus is very clear to make sure that we understand this. The rich man is not in Hades because he was wealthy, nor is Lazarus in the presence of God because he was poor. There are many in this world today who think that, you know, if you're rich, therefore, you know, you're not going to heaven. You got all your blessings here on earth and that God surely will take every poor person and bring him into his presence for all of eternity. And that's how God's going to balance everything out. But you know what's interesting is this. You know, there are going to be people who descend into gloom who are poor and never had anything in this lifetime. There will be people who are rich and had everything this world has to offer and will ascend into glory into the presence of God. And there are going to be those who had nothing, you know, that also are in the presence of God and those who had everything that aren't. And the question for you is this, which separates these groups? Turn with me to Luke, I mean, to uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 3, a book ahead. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John, chapter 3. And we've got to remember and we must never forget that this particular truth, this is what separates all. This is what determines whether you ascend into glory or descend into gloom. The Bible is very clear. In John chapter 3, look at verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. He goes on in verse 36 and says this, He who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Remember, throughout this series, I made it very clear that the one thing that determines our destiny is our belief. Our belief in what God says about the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Our belief that there's no other way to the Father but through Christ. Our belief that Jesus Christ, God, God in human flesh, who came to this earth, who lived a perfect life, who died on the cross as a substitute for the condemnation that you and I have already experienced because we are sinners that are separated from God. We're in rebellion against God. Whether you believe it or don't believe it, the word of God is very true. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If you ask yourself and examine yourself, are you perfect and have you done everything that God's wanted you to do in your life? The answer would be, if you're honest, no, I'm not perfect, but then we say, but I'm not that bad. But that's not the issue because the standard is whatever God has set. And God says that we must be perfect to enter into his presence. He cannot look upon sin. And as a, and as a result, he has sent Jesus Christ to die in our place. The Bible says in Romans 8.1, For those who put their faith and trust in Christ, there is what? Now no condemnation or judgment from God on those who are in Christ. The only thing that separates and will decide whether you go to heaven or go to hell is your belief and your belief alone in the person and the work of Jesus Christ, that he died in your place, that he rose three days later to, to, to emphasize the fact that he not only has power over death, but the power to be able to offer, offer forgiveness and eternal life for those who believe. 
I've got to make that very clear because there's too much confusion in our culture today about how or what one has to do to end up in heaven or end up in hell. And the Bible is clear on numerous occasions and you can't get around it. It is belief in Jesus Christ, on Jesus Christ, and in Him alone. That is what determines where you will go the moment after you die. As we're looking at this and going back to Luke chapter 16, I want you to be aware of four very noteworthy things and truths that are brought to our attention. First of all is this. Notice that the rich man who is in Hades is fully conscious of what is going on around him. He is aware of his surroundings. He has his senses. He could see. He could feel. He could hear. He could taste. He could talk. He was tormented. He was in agony. And if that's not bad enough, he also had a vivid memory of everything that took place this side of death. He remembered everything that took place in this lifetime before he died. He recalled every event that God used to get his attention. Perhaps it was his own illness. Perhaps it was the, the death of a close friend or a relative. Perhaps it was even the death of this poor man who sat outside of his gate. And as this rich man walked by him one day, he noticed that this man had died. And they hauled his body away. And that evidence that was there, that was streaming in his face, was saying to him, as it says to us, listen, take into consideration your own mortality. What is the meaning of life? What is the answer to life? Why am I here? Where do I go after I die? I'm going to die. And we try to avoid it, and we try to make jokes about it, and we laugh about it because we don't want to face it. As I said, many of us prepare longer to make a trip overseas than we do for the inevitable trip that all of us have to make. I'm going to ask you a question. That's this. How much time have you spent preparing for the moment after you die? This man had a vivid memory of all those things that God did to try to get his attention. Maybe it was an accident. Maybe it was a war. Maybe it was even the emptiness of his own riches. Solomon said when he had everything this world had to offer, he said, as I considered all of it, man, it was vanity. It was chasing after soap bubbles. I could do anything that I want whenever I wanted. I could buy anything I want, have anything I want, go anywhere I want to go. And when I got all of these things, I realized, man, there's got to be deeper meaning to life. There's got to be a purpose. There's got to be a creator. There's got to be a God. There's got to be order to all this. What's the purpose to it? What is God trying to tell me? He's trying to get our attention. And I've seen it in my own relationship with men who have achieved everything this world has to offer in their early 20s and they've got all the money they ever thought they would have. They reached the goals and the success level that they've always, they've always looked forward to. They wanted to be professional athletes. They signed a big contract. They got the signing bonus. They've got all this money. And they're some of the most miserable people that you'd ever want to meet. Why? Because they thought that when they had all of those things that then there would be fulfillment in their life. Then there would be peace. Then there would be joy. And all that they found were moments of happiness that were surrounded by moments of loneliness and misunderstanding of what life is all about. He would remember every person that God sent to try to share God's plan of forgiveness. He would remember every person, as I think about the funeral that I spoke at, that man, the moment after he died, was fully conscious of where he was. And he remembered every person that he played with that came and invited him to chapel. He remembered every person that came and invited him to a Bible study. He remembered every person that came and tried to share with him that God loved him and he sent Christ to die for him. He remembered all of that vividly. And he stood there now before God, condemned because he was without excuse and he was defenseless before God. God did everything that he could to get his attention. And he didn't see that. He even ridiculed and mocked those who would believe such nonsense in his opinion. 
all the cravings of life would never be satisfied. He said, please, just send Lazarus to dip his finger in some water that he could just drop a drop on the tip of my tongue. The craving of this life. You realize in Hades, an alcoholic will thirst for a drop of alcohol, but none will be given. A drug addict will want a fix and not be able to find one. Just another snort of coke, another shot of heroin, they won't be able to get one. These, these overwhelming urges and cravings of this lifetime will be unavailable. The immoral man will want just another sexual relationship with someone and not be able to find it. Perpetually burning lusts that never subside and the tortured conscience aches but is never sedated. So while we listen attentively to fellow teammates joke about wherever he is, if we could have seen behind the curtain, which we are now doing, we would have recognized that he was fully conscious, fully conscious, aware of his separation from God and aware of the many opportunities that he had to put his faith and his trust in Christ that thought it was ridiculous and rejected it. C.S. Lewis was told about a gravestone inscription that read this, Here lies an atheist, all dressed up and no place to go. Lewis quietly replied, I bet today he wishes that were so. Notice also the fixed chasm that is between the two men. There's a fixed chasm in verse 26. And besides all this between us and you, there is a great chasm that is fixed. It is clear that his fate or his destiny is irrevocably fixed. After death, listen carefully. After death, there are no second chances. After death, there are no do-overs. It is appointed for man to die once, and then comes judgment. We don't have a chance to come back and do it all over again and maybe next time get it right. Contrary to all the nonsense that's in the books that are on the best-selling list of many best-selling lists that are around this country, there are no do-overs, there are no second chances. The Word of God is clear, and if it is true, and we believe that it is, it is appointed for man to die once, and then comes judgment. There are no candles that can be lit, there are no prayers that can be said. There are no good works that you and I can do for those that we know who have died and gone from this life to the next. There is nothing that you and I can do to change the fate of those who are either in the presence of God or who are separated from Him by this great chasm that the Bible clearly teaches. It is irrevocably fixed, and it is up to each individual to determine now in this life where they will spend the next. As we look at this, we need to recognize that the, that the verdict here is guilty. And all he's waiting for is the ultimate sentence, which we'll talk about in a minute. This rich man understood that it was fixed. And you know why he understood? Because he said this. He said, uh, well, he never even asked the Lord. He never even asked Abraham, who represents God in this case. He never even asked if he could go back and warn his brothers. He said, well, perhaps Lazarus can, because obviously Lazarus has found some favor with God, and perhaps Lazarus can go and get me a drink of water, and perhaps Lazarus can go and warn my brothers of this place. But he never even dared to ask, well, let me out so I can go tell him, because he knew his fate was irrevocably fixed. He never even presumed upon that to ask of God. Interesting. He also realized this, that what he was experiencing was both fair and both just. We have good reason to believe that this man believed what was happening to him was fair and just. Consider this. He doesn't complain about anything. 
He complains about the agony that he's in. He complains about the torment that he's in. But you know what? You never hear him once say, this isn't fair. Why didn't anybody tell me? God, why didn't you try to get my attention? You know, with heightened awareness and understanding, he knew that what he was about to go through and what he was beginning to go through was fair. And it was just. Because he remembered vividly everything that God tried to do in his lifetime. He can never stand before God and say, you never sent anybody to tell me. You never did anything to get my attention. Well, I mean, this isn't right. He knew that it was fair and that it was just. And second and more importantly, he knew exactly what his brothers would need to do if they were to avoid his own fate. Notice what he says. Look at verse uh, 27. We'll pick it up on that. He says, he said, I beg you, Father, that you send him, speaking of Lazarus, to my father's house. For I have five brothers, that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. Then he said, No, Father, but if someone goes to them from the dead, then what? Then they will repent. Repent of what? Repent of their sin before God. Do you realize this man knew what it took to avoid the fate that he was now undergoing? And he also knew vividly from his memory that the word of God was very clear, that all of us are sinners, we fall short of the glory of God, that none of us are righteous, none of us are perfect. And that message, as it was told to him all throughout his life, he blew it off and said, who do you think you are telling me that I'm not righteous? Who do you think telling me that I'm a sinner before God? Who do you think telling me that I'm not perfect? Don't you tell me any of those things. I can buy anything that I want, and certainly I'll be able to buy my way into heaven. But you know what's interesting? is that he recognized what it would take for his brothers to avoid the same fate. Notice what he says. That if they hear, they will repent. What is repent? It means to change your mind. It means to change your mind about what God says. It means to change your mind about who you think you are. It means to change your mind. If you think that you're good enough to get to heaven and that you've worked enough and worked hard enough and someday God has to let you in because of how nice you are and all the good things that you've done, if you think that you can work your way into the presence of God, God says, change your mind about that because there's none righteous. It's by grace we're saved through faith and not of ourselves. It's a gift that God offers to anyone who will receive the gift that you cannot work your way to heaven because Jesus Christ did everything that it took for us to enter the presence of God. It means to repent and change your mind about what you think it's going to take to get into heaven. It also means to repent and turn from your sin, turn from sin and turn toward God. The greatest commandment is what? That you love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, and all your strength. You know, what's fascinating is this man looked back in his life. You know what? I'll guarantee you this. Every time he told a lie, he remembered. Every time he had an outburst of anger or he used the Lord's name in vain or he disobeyed his parents as a child, every time that he didn't put God first in his life and put his own needs first, every time he had disobeyed the commandments of God, every one of those things he will remember for all of eternity because God shouted to him, Hey, you know what? You're not as good as you think you are. Have you ever lied? Have you ever cheated? Have you ever stolen? Have you ever used the Lord's name in vain? Have you ever had an outburst of anger? Have you ever had sex with somebody outside of your marital partner? Have you ever done any of these things? Then you're guilty before God. And you know what? This guy was a cheat. And this guy stole. And you know why I know that he stole? Because if the Jews had been obeying the word of God, there wouldn't be people who were extremely wealthy and there wouldn't have been people that were extremely poor. Because God had given them specific instructions 
that every seventh year they were to forgive debt. And every 50th year, the year of Jubilee, they were to give the land back to, the, to those who were supposed to go to. This man wouldn't have habitually dressed in purple and linen, and he wouldn't have lived a lavish li- lifestyle if he would have been obedient to the word of God. He was a thief, and he was guilty before God. We need to recognize that and understand that. He knew what he was going through was fair and it was just. And with a heightened perception and better understanding, he could see his relationship with God should have taken foremost priority. And it did not. Notice also, he wanted more than anything else. He wanted, you know, what's interesting to me is this guy all of a sudden in Hades became very interested in missions, became very interested in spreading the gospel, and became very interested in praying. Lord, I pray that you send Lazarus to get me a drop of water. Lord, I pray that you'll send somebody back to warn my family. Lord, I pray. He spent more time praying in that two verses than he probably did all of his life. And he certainly had more interest in the word of God and the good news of the gospel than he ever had before. And you know what? More than anything in life, and I want you to listen to me and listen to me carefully. He wanted to make sure that his friends, that his family, and that those he loved did not end up with him in torment and agony for all of eternity. Why? Oh, man, you know, I hear jokes all the time. I heard it at the funeral. It says, hey, you know what? If I go to hell, I don't care if I go to hell because I'm going to be there with all my buddies and we're going to be drinking and partying and, man, it's going to be a great time. That is absolute ignorance at its highest. It will not be a great time. This man is not having a great time. This man is in agony. This man is in torment. He is fully aware of his surroundings. He is fully aware of the life that he lived on this earth. He is fully aware of every time God tried to get his attention. And he is aware that his his, uh, destiny is irrevocably fixed. And not only that, but he is also, and he doesn't even realize it, but the news is even going to get worse for him. And read uh, Revelation chapter 20 when you have an opportunity. But read this. It's going to get worse because those who die as unbelievers are awaiting God's final execution of judgment. And Revelation 20 gives us a very clear picture of that, that there is a day coming when all those who are in Hades will be resurrected bodily to appear before the great white throne judgment of Jesus Christ and they will be judged for what they have done in this lifetime, and they will be condemned before God. They're already condemned before God, and that's why they're there, but that sentence will then be fully executed when Hades is thrown into the lake of fire, and they will be in torment for eternity. If you read that passage, you'll realize that the false prophet and the beast, uh, though the Antichrist and the false prophet, were there a thousand years beforehand. They were still there. They were still in torment when Satan and his demons and those who are unbelievers are cast into the lake of fire, and they will be suffering for eternity. And it's a, mind, it's a concept that's as hard to believe as the good news that we're going to take a look at in a second. Let me read this for you and try to bear with it. And I know that the author has a, a little uh, abrupt approach, a little, you know, and, and, but, but listen very carefully to what he writes and don't miss the point and be offended by some of the things that he says, but listen to the message. He said, it is not unlikely that within the last 24 hours you've heard someone say, what the hell are you doing? Or I sure as hell will. Or who in the hell do you think you are? That word hell has become a conversational byword in our day. Good friends dare to say playfully to one another, go to hell. Well, they surely don't mean go to the place of punishment for the wicked after, the, after death, though that is how the dictionary in the Bible def- defines the word hell. But why use the word hell? Why not instead, what the jail are you doing, or I sure as school will? And why not say, oh, go to Chicago? Or go to P- Pittsburgh? 
simply because jail, school, and Chicago, even for the enemies of each, have no real sting. They have only the flavor of vanilla at a time when chocolate or peppermint is needed. It says, when it comes right down to it, in the English language, hell is the strongest expletive available that carries the idea of ultimate deprivation, devastation, fear, torment, punishment, suffering, and loss. Whether or not the user of the term hell believes in an actual literal hell or of little, uh, is of little or no consequence, there is an inbuilt, inarticulated, yet understood bite in the very word itself. So if hell really is the place for eternal punishment of the wicked after death, how come it's used so lightly millions and millions of times each day? Why is there such an apparent lack of seriousness about the word? Why is a word so heavy with meaning used so indifferently? And why do people pretend that the place does not exist? When is the last time you heard a serious sermon on the subject or read an article of a note dealing with judgment and eternal punishment? It says even the, evangel- even the event- evangelical crowd has by and large avoided the topic, opting for a more positive approach. Hell has come on hard times. Deep below the surface of things, a proliferating erosion concerning the seriousness of hell brought on by a complex web of modern ideas about hell has stripped this weighty word of most of its awesomely solemn content. And I agree, and I'll tell you this, Jesus Christ warned more about avoiding the consequences of hell than he ever spoke about the riches and the treasures of heaven. How can one avoid such a destiny? How can you and I avoid the descent into gloom? Look what he says. In verses 29 through 31, is very clear. He says that we are to believe in the word of God. Moses represented the law and the prophets. And the bottom line is this that God says the most powerful and most effective weapon that you and I have in sharing this good news with those around us is the Word of God. If man will not believe the very Word of God, why in the world would a man believe someone who has come back from the dead? If this man could have gone back, his brothers would have had a medical explanation as to why he really didn't die and the fact that he was on some type of drug and hallucinating when he came back to share what he had learned and discovered. The bottom line is this. If we do not believe God, we certainly will not believe one another. And that is why the Word of God has to be preeminent in the life of every believer. And that's why the Word of God has to be preeminent in the ministry and the pulpit of every Bible-teaching church. The Word of God is the only thing that God has given us that is effective to reach the hearts and the souls of men. For the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. It's able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart to separate bone from marrow. The Word of God penetrates lives. And as the Word of God goes out right now, this is truth. This is not my take. This is not my opinion. This is not my theory. If it was, you can blow it off and come up with something that's more comfortable for you. But if it is indeed the truth of the Word of God, the message of God Himself, who wants every person to understand what to expect the moment after they die, if it is truth, then you better believe it or you will experience the same fate as this man who blew it off during his lifetime. What will it take to avoid such a destiny? The Word of God is very simple, that you believe on Him whom God has sent, that you believe on Jesus Christ. For this is the witness, uh, 1 John 5, 11 through 13, for this is the testimony of God. For this is the witness that God has given us his, his, his Son. And he who has the Son has life. And he who does not have the Son does not have life. He says, In these things I've written to you, that you may know that you have eternal life. Ask yourself the question, the moment after you die, what will you experience? 
if you have rejected or failed to believe on Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, then you can be guaranteed and assured the same destiny as this man. You will be fully conscious. You will be in a place of torment and agony. You will remember every opportunity that God gave you to respond to his grace. You will remember this day and this message for all of eternity if you do not turn your heart and your life to Jesus Christ right now. If you wait, you will remember that you waited and it was too late. The Bible is very clear. You will be irrevocably in a place where you no longer can ever have any choice. If you don't like the accommodations, you can't pack up and leave. You will know that God is fair and that he's just. And you will recognize one day when the final call comes that you will be resurrected from this place called Hades and you will appear bodily before Jesus Christ only to be condemned for all of eternity based on the works that you've done and you will be punished accordingly forever and ever. That is the truth of the word of God and you either believe it or don't. You know, that man who we spoke at his funeral, he didn't believe it, but he believed it the moment after he died. Now, the good news is this, and let's end on an up note, although that's an up note too. And I'll tell you why it's an up note. Because if you're here and you're not sure of what your destiny is, or you're sure that based on what I've just said, if it's true that you'll end up in the same place, then the Bible says today that you can get right with God. And that certainly is good news of the gospel. And that's what the good news is all about. That today, at this moment in time, you can ask God to forgive you of your sin. You can repent and change your mind on what you think it takes to get into heaven. And you can invite Jesus Christ into your life. And you can do that in in the privacy of your own relationship with God. Even as I go on to the next point, you can get right with God. Now, the good news for all the rest of us who have put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ is this, that we will ascend into glory... And the Bible is very clear and paints a wonderful picture of what we can anticipate. And in fact, the Bible clearly teaches all throughout the New Testament that death turns from a monster to a minister. And I like that. From a monster to a minister. And I want to just share with you some of the things that the Bible has to say. Number one, death is pictured as a departure. Jesus, whose courage in the face of death is a model for all of us, referred to as death as a departure says, in fact, it's an exodus. If you remember on the Mount of Transfiguration when he appeared with Moses and Elijah, the Bible says that they were discussing his departure, which was at hand. The word departure means exit or an exodus, which we get from the, first, uh, from the second book of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus. Exodus means to depart. It's a book of the Israelites leaving or departing Egypt to the land that God had promised them. And you know what? There was nothing, nothing scary about that departure as long as they followed Moses and they had a qualified leader, all they had to do was do what God told them to do, and they followed Moses, and Moses took them from Egypt, and he took them to the land that God had promised them. And all they had to do was obey his commands. And what's fascinating is this. There's nothing scary about departing and following after Jesus because Jesus has already shown us the way to get to heaven. He came from heaven. He came to earth. He returned to heaven. He knows better than anyone the way, and that's why he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And you know what? When you have a qualified person to follow, there's no fear in following is there. Jesus Christ is qualified to lead the way. It is a departure. It is an exit. All we're doing is exiting this life to the next life. And that's the picture that God has given us. I like the story of a little girl was asked whether she feared walking through the cemetery. She replied, no, I'm not afraid for my home is on the other side. See, an exodus never be feared if it's the route to a better destination. The second word or phrase that God uses to to give us some comfort in this whole idea of death is that death is a restful sleep. Paul used the figure of speech when he taught that some believers would not see death, that they'd be caught up to meet Christ. He says in 1 Corinthians 15, 51, Behold, I tell you a mystery, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Not everyone will die. There will be some, and there will be those who, if Jesus comes today and you put your faith and trust in Christ, we will escape death. 
that we'll be caught up with him. Concerning the dead, my brother, I don't want you to be uninformed, but those who are dead in Christ will rise first, and we who are alive will what? Be caught up in air and be with him. But there's also this teaching that somehow or another uh, that death is an end of existence. There are those who teach what they call soul sleep. They ask you in, in, in rather interesting ways. They say, well, do you remember where you were before you were born? Well, therefore, how will you know where you go afterwards? It's the same thing. Yeah, you'd only hope that it was. But according to the Word of God, it is not. That is a conscious existence that takes place. And what's interesting is, just as we saw that the rich man was fully conscious in Hades, if you recall the conversation that Moses had, centuries after God had buried him, Moses was alive and he was fully aware and talking with Jesus about his impending departure. So there's no such thing as soul sleep. You do not just disappear when you die. You don't go into non-existence. The Bible says you clearly will exist at a different place. And it's called a restful sleep. Now, here's, as we look at this, Stephen said this as he was about to die. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit, Acts 7:59. Of the dying thief, Jesus said in Luke 23:43, he said this, Today you will be with me in paradise. The Apostle Paul said to depart and to be with Christ, that is much better. It says absent from the body, 2 Corinthians 5, 8. I'd rather be absent from the body and what? Present with the Lord. So the Bible clearly teaches that for the believer, the moment that we die, though our body remains behind, our spirit and our soul are in the very presence of God himself. And that's why the Bible says that, you know what, that uh, it is precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. We need to recognize that and we need to understand it. Now, the, 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 the point is this. But what's it have to do with the idea of sleep? And some of you right now, as you sleep, the person next to you can explain this to you when you get up. But the whole idea of sleep is this. That the body sleeps, so to speak, and awaits the resurrection from that position. The body sleeps. Anytime you see the Bible say anything about sleep, it has to do with entering a rest. It has to do with entering the rest from the weariness of this lifetime. Have you ever got to the point where you're just, you know, you're so exhausted you can't wait to sleep? Some of you are there. I see that. But, but if you're there now, I mean, you just can't wait just to go catch some Z's, man. You just want to take a nap, you know, and it's just like, I'm so tired, I just want to sleep. Hey, the reality of what God is saying is this, that that's what he calls entering into that rest, is the body will rest, the soul and the spirit will be before God, and the body will have rest from the weariness of this lifetime. You know what's interesting is this. The older that you get and the more tired that you get, the more you long for and look for those moments of rest. If you have an elderly person in your family, maybe it's a parent or a grandparent or a friend of the family, and if you talk to them, you notice that, you know what, they're just tired. And there's a point that we get, the older that we get, that we just get tired of all the aches and all the pains and everything that comes with this life, and they just want rest. The Bible says that that body will rest, but the soul and spirit will be before the very presence of God himself. And then when we're talking about a restful sleep, that's exactly what the Bible refers to. And so as we look at all this, in fact, it says, As for me, Psalm 17, 15, As for me, I shall behold thy face in righteousness. I will be satisfied with the likeness when I awake. Isn't that great? When I go from this life to the next, man, I am going to be pumped up. The Bible also talks about death as a collapsing tent. Listen. Paul says, 2 Corinthians 5, 1, For we spoke that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. The Bible refers to our bodies as a collapsing tent. How many of you like to go camping? 
there are a handful of people. Oh, there's a lot more than I thought there would be in this uh, particular group here. <laughs> now, what's interesting is this. Now, there are people that like to go camping, and, and, they, you know, and there are even people that actually stay in tents, and they would do that for a long time. But as the tents got older and as they got older, there's an interesting thing that takes place. We have neighbors who, 12 years ago, when we first moved in the neighborhood, they used to go camping every weekend, and they used to go with tents. Okay? Well, then a few years go by, and they got themselves a, uh, like, you know, a camper shell for their pickup truck so they can stay in the back of that and make it a little more comfortable. A few years go by after that, and they got themselves a motorhome. Now they got themselves what they call a Marriott timeshare. <laughs> and the reason for it is, as they got older and as their tent began to fall apart, they began to realize that, man, this just isn't as comfortable as it used to be. And now look around. We got some collapsing tents. Look at this, man. I'm telling you, we, you look stand up here and you go, oh, you, you think you're looking good. It's like some of you got like duct tape, you know, all over, man. We got the holes, they got the duct tape. Yeah, so like, it's like we're collapsing, we're falling apart. Every day that you see a new gray hair and another new wrinkle and every new ache and another pain that you have is God's way of reminding us very lovingly, don't get too attached with that tent don't put the stakes in too deep because God's going to uproot it and there's nothing you can do to change the day that God has appointed for a man to die once. A collapsing tent. As I mentioned, I, you know, I've been around now 20 years. I, I just thought about this this morning on the way here. For the last 20 years, I've been involved in athletics all my life. For the last 20 years, I've been involved with professional athletes. And as a result, we've been around long enough that we saw guys come into the league, we saw them have great careers, and we now see them leaving at the other end. And what's funny is I had a friend who's a, a professional football player, he's a linebacker, and I talked to him during last season, and he's played 14 years, and he's getting up in age, and, and I said, hey, man, how you doing? He goes, man, I'm just sitting here looking at game films. He goes, you know, he goes, I look like the Tin Man running around out there. Now, for those of you who don't know, the Tin Man running around on a football field isn't a good thing. <laughs> a Tin Man's not real quick. He's there like, man, I'm looking, I see my, I, I, my heart, my spirit's willing, but my flesh is like, oh, I'm going to get you. And, you know, and you got a quarterback standing there going, I got all day. Yeah, that's another six seconds. You know, and, and so that's not good. But what he realizes is that, you know what, as hard as he tries, there's nothing he can do about the fact that his tent is collapsing all around him. The Bible also looks at death as a, a sailing ship. That's a sailing ship. Paul in Philippians 1.23 says, I'm hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and to be with Christ, for that is much better. The idea of a ship that's about to set sail. You know, what's interesting is that, you know, he says that yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Verse 24. God told him, hey, you know what? Don't pack your bags yet. It's not time for you to leave. It's not time for you to depart on that trip. Later on, though, 2 Timothy 4, 6, Paul says, For I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. The signal for him to push off was imminent. If you've ever been to the airport and you notice where you've got a boarding call or a last call or now loading rows 15 through 23 or 1 through 6 or whatever, you realize that there's a final call. And when it's time to answer the final call, you can't sit in your chair and say, I decided I'm not taking this trip. Because when it's God's final call, you're going to make the trip. The question is, are you prepared to make the trip? And the Bible also talks about the fact that death for the believer is a permanent home. Is a permanent home. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. For if it wasn't so, I wouldn't have told you so, Jesus said. 
But because it is so, I go and I prepare a place for you, a permanent home, that where I am, one day you will also be, and we will be together for all of eternity. Those are the promises that Jesus made himself. It's a permanent home. You know, if, for those of you who don't know me and those who do understand what I'm about to say, it's true, and that's this. I, I'm a homebody. I mean, I, I don't mind us entertaining people at our house. We love having people over. We always have people over. Our house is called the Inn on the Hill. In fact, we've got a revolving front door. Um, you know, people just coming in, and, and we're thinking about a doorman, you know. But, uh, but that's just the way that it is, and we don't mind that at all. I like entertaining at our home. I'm comfortable in our home. I'm not so much comfortable in the homes of other people. And maybe it's because I'm in a, you know, a heating and air conditioning business and I go out and give people estimates and I see what their homes are like. And so th- there's, there's a point where there's times you walk in like this. Oh, uh, I'll call you. <laughs> so, you know, because you just don't want to touch anything. That's the point. But I'm comfortable at home. I'm comfortable at home. I like being home. I'm comfortable there. And you know what the Bible says about death? That death will take us to our permanent home. Because this life right now, I don't know if you realize it or not, but if you put your faith and trust in Christ, the only reason that you're still here is because you're an ambassador. You're an ambassador for Jesus Christ who's here to tell others around you that there is a way to avoid the inevitable of a place that is separated from God for eternity, a place called Hades and ultimately hell and the lake of fire that we are here to share with our friends and family so that they avoid the fate that we see that this rich man entered into because he refused to repent and believe the word of God. You and I are ambassadors for Christ. We are away from our home. Our home, our citizenship, is truly in heaven. We are away from our home. So don't ever get too comfortable in this life. You know, it's only those who are comfortable, those who are in good shape, that are in good health, that have good jobs, that are really enjoying their life. They're the ones that aren't in a hurry to get home. So you know what, there's a day coming and every ambassador will tell you that when an administration change takes place, there's a day coming where they get a phone call and says, you know what, your time as an ambassador is up. It's time to call you home. The question is this, how faithful was that ambassador to conduct themselves in a manner that was pleasing of the one that sent them? The only reason you and I are still here is to be ambassadors for Christ. When people see our life, they say, you know what, I want to know what that person knows. When they see the joy in the midst of trial, when they see us sharing with others the love of Christ, and they, they, they hear us tell them and warn them of the reality of hell, they want to be able to hear the truth. And we're not responsible for how they choose. They're accountable individually before God. And just if you're here today and you don't know Christ and you don't really know what's going to happen to you when you die, none of us get any credit for the fact that you may put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Our salvation, our eternity is not based on if we sign 10 people up. Thank God, God's program isn't a multi-level marketing program. We all stand before God on our own merits. Actually, not even on our own merits, but on the merits of whether we believe the merits of Jesus Christ and what he has done in our place. Why should we fear death is the question. If death is the final road that leads us home. You see, death for the believer is the limo that God sends to pick us up and to bring us back. We need to recognize that and understand that. Now, for those who fear death, who are uncertain whether the moment after you die will be a time of elation or agony, you can resolve that here and now by acknowledging your sin before God. Lord, I'm not perfect. I am a sinner. What the guy said is true. I may lead other people to believe and I'm okay, but I know that I've disobeyed. I know that I've fallen short. I know that I've lied. I've cheated. I've stolen. I've done things that nobody else even knows about. But God, if you are God, you know it all. 
He says, so I'm not playing games anymore. And I repent. I confess that. I repent from that. And I believe what you say, that you sent Christ to die in my place. I believe he died for my sin. I believe that he rose from the dead. And I believe that he can offer me forgiveness and eternal life. And Lord, I want to ask you right now to come into my life and resolve that right at this moment. And this is the witness that God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. For he who has the Son has life. And he who does not have the Son of God does not have life. I have written these things to you so that you may know that you have eternal life. For those who have settled this issue with God and know that death is the, the limo that will transport you into his very presence, I want you to listen carefully as I close with this story. Three men were the closest of friends. They enjoyed the outdoors and often hunted and fished together. And on this occasion, they find themselves around a fire in northern India, drinking coffee and watching the distant light of an early dawn. So several weeks before this trip, the oldest of the three men had become a Christian. He had put his faith and his trust in Jesus Christ. He had not yet had the opportunity to share the excitement of his new destiny with the others. And as they sat around the fire, they began talking about their various adventures, and one of the younger men suggested that each of them answer, a question, answer this very same question. What's the most exciting experience in all of your life? And each would share a story. The first man answered and said he was on a tiger hunt that he'd been on. He says that it had been about how they had stalked the beast for more than two days, and the final six hours were the most thrilling when he found himself face to face with a big cat. Just as the hungry animal leaped, he fired, and the cat lay dead at his very feet. But he thought he was going to die of fright, for sure. The second hunter told of an experience in Alaska, north of the Aleutian Islands involving an enormous bear. He said it all happened so fast that he wasn't even, it wasn't even until after the whole experience ended that he was aware of how closely he had come to death said he had to squeeze off three rounds before that huge beast finally dropped virtually at his feet. And he said that he reminded them that the furry-skinned bear was now a rug covering the floor in his den. Finally, the oldest man spoke, and he said, my most exciting experience? He says it hasn't happened yet. But it will occur only seconds or the moment after I die. This led him into an opportunity to talk with his closest friends about Christ. And they listened with rapt attention as he described the thrilling anticipation that he never knew before. Death was no longer a fearful thing on the distant horizon, but rather an entrance into the most awesome delight that the mind could ever imagine. Is it any wonder that the psalm says, Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for thou art with me. Father, we just thank you for the truth of your word. We just thank you and we pray for those who are hearing this maybe for the first time or are not sure of what will happen the moment after they die, that they would believe your word, that they would act upon it as they hear it, that they would repent of their sin, that they would trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sin and for the eternal life that he has to offer, that they would invite him into their life right at this moment in time. And God, for the rest of us who have come to that point of faith at some point in the past, we just thank you and praise you as we look forward to that moment where we're transported from this life to the next. As we look forward to the limo, death, that you send to pick us up, what a wonderful ride it'll be. And the moment after our death, the elation that we'll experience and the awesome splendor that we'll see as we appear before the very throne of God himself. Lord, we just thank you and we praise you and we look forward to it, not because we're fatalists, but because we look forward to the truth and the promises that you make. But in the meantime, God, we know that we're here as ambassadors for Christ, that we represent you in this world, that we're lights in darkness, 
and that we should shine in such a way that people would be attracted to the light, not because we are the light, but because Jesus Christ is the light. He says he's the resurrection and the light. He says he's the only way to the Father through him. God, may we become faithful people who help people understand that there are only two destinies that take place after this lifetime. There's the descent into gloom that can be avoided by simple faith and trust in Christ. And then there's the ascent into glory that is a reward for all who have put their faith and trust in Christ. And we just thank you and praise you in his name. Amen.